Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Terry Roberts, author of the new novel, My Mistress's Eyes Are Raven Black. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thank you so much. I very much admire what you do. And so it's all the more uh, pleasure to, to be with you today and to talk with you about reading and writing. Well, great. Thanks a lot. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, My Mistress's Eyes Are Raven Black, how would you describe the novel? It is a hard-boiled detective thriller, or at least it's intended to be, uh, set on Ellis Island in 1920. And while it's it's a murder mystery on the surface of things, at a deeper level, it deals with questions of xenophobia and um, sort of race hatred. And, and essentially, the, the birth, the impetus of the novel has to do with, with my long questions about why we as human beings are so susceptible um, to the temptation to fear and hate the other, those we perceive as different, and and so it it, it goes into uh, it goes into that question at some depth, but but then again, on the surface, uh, what I hope and what most readers have said is that it's it's that good old fashioned murder mystery that so many of us crave. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write this novel? I do, and it was it actually uh, was some years ago. It had to do with just that question: what What is it about us? Almost every single culture has its antithesis culture, the culture that it you know that it makes fun of, it tells jokes about, it despises on some level. Sometimes it's in good fun. Sometimes it's quite vicious, and then of course. The human race has this long history of uh, Protestants burning Catholics and vice versa. And so, so my, my deep question from the beginning was, what is it about us that makes us so susceptible to this, um, to this notion if we, have, if we have blue eyes that brown-eyed people aren't to be trusted, and we certainly on some level fear them. Now, again, that's an exaggeration about eye color. But but the idea, of course, of tribalism runs very, very deep. And during the 1920s, um, the faux science of eugenics was at the high, had its high watermark in the United States. And, and so it seemed the perfect time and place, Ellis Island, to set a novel that has to do with, with these deeper, darker questions about who we are and, and why we are that way. Um, having decided that first, I, I then began to think that maybe a way to, to make use of the fact that Ellis Island is such a, such an astounding and very American setting that, um, I could set a murder mystery there and, uh, people would enjoy reading it. That's interesting. Well, what kind of research did you do while you were working on the novel? Well, you know, two kinds, I suppose, right off. One, I read sort of the standard history, histories, plural, of Ellis Island, uh, particularly those chapters, literal and figurative, that had to do with World War One, and then the 10 years right after World War One, which represented a kind of sea change in American 
um, attitudes towards immigration. And, and in fact, the first really restrictive immigration laws were passed in 1924, so not long after this novel is set. And, and to me, that was sort of hanging over things. So I read a lot about that. The other thing, Jeff, I have to say is I'm an extraordinarily visual person for somebody who spends so much of his life involved with words. I love nothing better than photographs. And so I went back and looked at, uh, you know, the astounding ray of photographs from the teens, 20s and 30s from Ellis Island, including photographs by Augustus F. Sherman, who appears as a character in the novel. Um, what many of those photographs reveal is that a number of people, Sherman included, were very interested in sort of genetic identity. Where did we come from and how does that mark who we are? The family face, at one point, Sherman calls it. And so that, that photographic research um, also fed the book. And um, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you one other story, and sure. I have to try to tell it without giving away um, any secrets about the plot of the book. Um, I had never visited Ellis Island when I began working on this. It was it was done entirely out of the sort of historical record. And then my wife and I had a chance at a key moment to, to be in New York for several days. We went to Ellis Island and took the hard hat tour, it's called, which means you don't just visit the main hall on Island One, you actually uh, walk past the hospital on Island Two and then the isolation hospital on Island Three, where this novel is set. And at that point, I thought I knew who the murderers were. I thought I, I, I was familiar with the detective, perhaps the love interest, but I didn't know how the killings were actually being committed. I didn't know how the murderers were managed to dispose of the immigrants that they didn't approve of in a way that didn't give them away. And during that hard hat tour, um, we were walking through the laundry of all places and, and something was revealed. And, and I looked at it and I looked at my wife and I said, that's <laughs> it. And she said, that's what? <laughs> you know? and, and I said, that's how they're doing it. Yeah. And, and so without giving it away, um, at that moment, I realized that I had a, the missing plot element, so to speak. That's great. Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? You know, there, therein lies a tale. Like a lot of us, I was a, I was a literature major, an English major as an undergraduate and uh, was a bookaholic, uh, we might call it, meaning, you know, I love nothing mm -hmm. more than to curl up with a book. And in my 20s, thought that, that someday I might write the great American novel, you know, quotation marks around <laughs> same, and, and, and tried, and, and to miserable effect, meaning that <laughs> what I produced <laughs> was sad, and it's a, it, we can only celebrate the fact that it's no longer around. It's gone. It's long gone. <laughs> um, and then in my 40s, um, I, when I was living, I live in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and, and I was living away from, from home, away from the mountains for an extended period of time. And I think I just came homesick for the mountains. And so I started writing a narrative I knew it was fiction, 
but I really didn't think it was pub- for publication. I, th- I thought it was perhaps for my own enjoyment, maybe maybe some family members, etc. And as it unfolded, it, it seemed to me that it actually had some merit, you know, some good stuff here, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I began to think of it as a novel, and and it and eventually finished it. And eventually, now there are several eventuallys in there. It took quite a while. Um, a short time to stay here was published by a small regional publisher originally, and it and it won a prize. It won the Willie Morris Prize for Southern Fiction, which was a shock. I mean, it's one of those things where you open the email and you think, what? <laughs> Me, they've sent this to the wrong person, you know. And uh, but as it turns out, the book, the book, you know, gathered momentum, and one thing led to another, and and something at that point happened. The that novel was first published um, in 2013, and then later reissued by Turner. Or actually, it's first published in 2012. So essentially, ten years ago, give or take. And in that 10-year period, there have been three more novels. So somehow, and, and again, I can't, I don't know that I can account for it really. Um, I went from not writing at all, or at least not writing fiction at all, to in a period, in a decade, um, seeing four novels published. That's great. So, so, I, so I'm curious, what was, what was kind of the path to publication? You said it was eventually published by a, a small regional publisher. What, what was that uh, journey like? So it's interesting. A Short Time to Stay Here uh, is narrated by the same man, Stephen Robbins, by the way, that narrates My Mistress Eyes. And, um, and so he, the other books are not, but, but these two are. And so this was the, the, the origin of Stephen, I guess, in a lot of ways. And, um, so I wrote this this novel manuscript. I showed it to a few friends who were writers, and they gave some good advice, which I followed. And I um, had some contacts through another line of work with the um, Gene and Ina Winnick, who were the executors of the Thomas Wolfe estate. And so I wrote to them and asked them to read it, and I'm sure they heaved a heavy sigh <laughs> and and wrote back and said, yes, well, it turns out Ina got her hands on it as opposed to Jean, and loved it. Um, I'm convinced she loved it because she worked really hard for it for, I don't know, probably three or four years and could not find a New York publisher for the book. Um, And it's the classic case, right? I mean, we get rejection letters that said, do A, but not B. And then the next rejection letter would say, for heaven's sake, do B, but not A, you know? And so we didn't didn't quite know what to do. And um, she finally admitted she exhausted her resources and I should look for a a local publisher and a small regional publisher that no longer exists named Ingalls Publishing in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, um, published the the first iteration of um, A Short Time to Stay Here. And um, it was submitted for a number of prizes, but again, very tiny regional press. I did all the things that struggling authors do you know, walked into bookstores and said, please sell my book and, (laughs) you know, mailed it off to reviewers and so forth. And, um, so it won, it won several prizes. And, and so it, it sort of made a name for itself. And as a result, 
Um, I began to work with a second agent who sold That Bright Land, the second book. And, and I'm using the term, by the way, sold loosely. <laughs> Don't imagine a lot of dollar signs after that sold. <laughs> the, um, and then when Ingalls Publishing went out of business, uh, Turner Publishing, which has published all the novels since then, picked it up and reissued it. And so it, it, I guess what I would say, the lesson there is for all struggling writers is sometimes the publishing industry doesn't really know what it wants. Um, you know, sure. I'm, you know, and, and my editors at Turner, if you're listening to this, just ignore that last statement, but, but, <laughs> but really they don't. And, and part of what's so odd about the experience is they're supposed to be novels, right? As in new and different and unseen. But in reality, a lot of a lot of what publishing about is about, of course, and you know this is is say, being able to say this novel is like that novel right. that you loved. Um, and so anyway, af after a, a long, I served my time in the rejection letter trade, and um, eventually, you know, have, have found a a really good publisher, I think, for writers, Turner in Nashville, Tennessee. And and the rest is history. That's great. So are you working on a new novel now? I am. There is a book that is slated to to be published in July of 2022. Turner has it. In fact, we're working on the line edits. And the, the title is The Sky Club, which if, if you're from Western North Carolina, was a was a jazz joint and um, kind of blind pig during the Depression and prohibition um, on the hills outside Asheville. And it has to do with, in some sense, I think the question that drives it is what is wealth? What is what does it mean to say that one is wealthy? Is it measured solely in in dollars and cents? Is it measured in some other fashion? It's it it is set around um, the pivotal point in the book is 1930. November of 1930, which is when the the crash, I, aka the Great Depression, came to Asheville with a vengeance. It was on on a single day, eight banks failed to open, and so suddenly, dramatically, people who had money were broke. Um, so anyway, it has to do with that. The, the The departure for me is that the entire novel is narrated in first person by a woman, um, which is easy to say, but I confess hard to do, <laughs> meaning, meaning it involves, of course, rethinking uh, the gaze through which one looks at the world in all kinds of ways. And so far, uh, almost everyone who's read it is either as editor or agent or um, friend is is female, and and so far the reports are good. They they say I haven't violated any uh, any treaties. So <laughs> that's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? You know, I, I've thought a lot about this, and again, because it's just it's really been in the last ten years, and and I would say that I am fortunate. In that it's not how I earn my living, and meaning that I'm I'm able, with a clear conscience, to say, 
what I think is the best advice. And I really do think the best advice is as much as you can enjoy the writing process itself. You know, the discoveries, the exploration, the asking of the questions, the getting to know the characters, the enjoying the surprising things that they do and say while you're with them. Um, you spend way much more time writing than you do being interviewed <laughs> or enjoying the publication date or, or, you know, signing books for friends and, and acquaintances. Um, that part of it, of course, is, is a kind of celebratory note is a lot of fun, but, sure. the, but it's not much fun if you don't enjoy the process itself, I would say. And, and, a, a dear friend and a mentor, a writer named John Ely, once said to me that um, the best thing about being a writer is that you never have to take a day off. And I thought about that, and I thought, wow, that, that must mean you love it. And, and, that, <laughs> and, and I think that's what he was saying. You know, he yeah. was saying, if, if, if you're in love with the process, nobody's going to make you stop doing it. They may not reward you for doing it, right? <laughs> but they're not going to stop you from doing it. Um, so, so I really do. I think my best advice is to find those things which obsess you, which are compelling for you, and delve deeply into them and enjoy the enjoy the ride, enjoy That's the process. Great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, it's a great question. One of the things that I go back and reread um, is John Ely, the writer I mentioned a moment ago. We lost John several years ago, but he wrote some gorgeous books about Western North Carolina and other places. But it's interesting in writing my mistress eyes, I read a steady diet of, um, I don't know what you would call them. Good old fashioned. They used to be called in, in another day, hard boiled detective fiction, <laughs> the Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, James Kane, Ross MacDonald, you know, Dorothy Hughes is a great woman writer in that genre, you know, right up to the present day, Walter Mosley and, and so forth. Sure. And p part of what I was trying to do was deliberate. It was extraordinarily enjoyable. I have to say, you know, uh, make a good stiff drink. Uh, if it, if the weather's chilly at all, build a fire and um, sit back uh, with the drink on the arm of your chair and read one of those. And and before you know it, it's midnight, right? <laughs> um, right. But the the intent there was to was to in in essence sort of feed on those great classic writers in the sense that I sort of operate on the theory, just as you are what you eat, I think you are what you read in a way too. And, and so I, I think there's a lot to be said in my case for reading those books while you're working on a similar book, a book you hope is similar, because I think they sink down into the subconscious, you know, the, the, the tone, the mood, the ways of seeing and saying things. So that when you sit down at the laptop to work on chapter 36, in a lot of ways, you know, 
and I'm not talking about plagiarism at all. I'm really talking about influence. Mm-hmm. Um, is the that mood, that tone, and in some cases, that language is there, right? And by True. that, I mean, you know, in one of those good old-fashioned Raymond Chandlers, they don't say, I made a drink. You know, they say I staggered over to the bar and built a drink <laughs> like the ivory tower. So, I mean, you know, in other words, yeah, the yeah. language itself is gorgeous. And so if it, if it manages to color your own vocabulary a little bit, again, play, not plagiarism aside, just as, just as a way of capturing the, the attitude and the tone, then what better? So, so yeah, that's the, you know, to me, that's the connection for me between reading and writing and this book. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? They should look for uh, www.terryrobertsauthor.com. Um, very straightforward. My name and the word author, no, no breaks. And there is a Facebook page, Terry Roberts Author, where you can, you know, Follow various things like the Reading Writing Podcast, which, of course, we'll take great care to toss out there into the world via social media. But but that's the best place to keep up and to follow uh, both those places and then to follow not just my mistress eyes, but then this next book as it takes shape and uh, comes to life. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Terry Roberts, author of the new novel, My Mistress's Eyes Are Raven Black. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Terry, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you and what you do, uh, and I look forward to further partnership. That's great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audio book of My Mistress's Eyes Are Raven Black by Terry Roberts. Narrated by Wayne Mitchell. Available wherever audiobooks are sold. I suppose all of us are composed of at least two minds. Or more like three or four minds dancing to some music inside our heads that we can't really hear with our external senses. That day I spent finding out what it was really like to step off the ferry as a newcomer to the United States. Scared, anxious, staring wide-eyed and listening for any clue. I did all of that with one mind. But another mind, a deeper, more visceral mind, was thinking during all that long day of Lucy Paul and what she had said. Two minds, at least questioning the ways of the world, seeking for any clue to the rhythms that shaped the lives of our kind. When Lucy Paul first turned away from me to walk up the gangplank to the ferry, I stood as if stuck to the spot. Not because what she had said outraged me. Everything about the way she had asked the question, the expression on her face, the flicker in her eyes how she almost reached out to touch my arm but stopped herself. Everything said that she was referring to herself when she asked the question. But even so, I didn't feel betrayed or lied to. I was too fond of the whimsical light in those cold black eyes, 
too taken with the smudge of coffee and the milk of her skin to feel any harder dismay. She was who she was, her own creature, unremarked and only now discovered. But everything about her question echoed in the empty reception hall of my mind, blending into the whispered, blurted, shouted questions about racial features, ethnic proclivities, the family face in Augustus Sherman's photographs, language, origin, passage, reception, examination, the shape of this head, the curious slant of those brows, the pursed white lips or berry stained grin. I was so lost in thought, my two minds or three twisting into odd patterns and symbols like smoke in the breeze, that I hardly noticed that I was swept up into the wave of immigrants pouring off the ferry that had replaced Lucy's departing boat at the dock. I was stumbling up the slight incline toward the great hall, jostled more or less innocently on all sides by the mass of humanity determined to navigate the maze that confronted them at the end of the walkway, at the top of the stairs. I let myself go with them, my own disoriented feelings so in tune with theirs that I must be one of them, as far away from home and as anxious to survive as they. I didn't stand out, with my worn, tanned face cracked in half by the jagged scar that ran from my broken nose between my eyes up into my hairline, and the missing tooth that showed when I grinned back at life, the pure white patch in my hair at the temple where the scar disappeared, my eyes a tired blue that could look almost reptilian when I was insulted or angry. I imagined that I fit right in with my battle scars and anarchist glance. When I did bother to look out and around me at the people I was forming into line with, I saw that many had changed into their best clothes for this occasion, dug into bags and boxes for their native garb, which only served to make them stand out like strange birds of an exotic plume but many could offer only the stained and dirty clothes they'd traveled into the new world. And though they had dusted and scrubbed, their best was still worn hard and smelled of shipboard cooking. Too many days and nights with little more than a basin of cold water to wash in. I glanced down at my own suit of clothes, and though it was clean and smelled faintly of detergent, I could boast the same shabby attempt to look presentable as they. The only difference was that most had a numbered tag tied to a buttonhole, the number of the ship manifest their names had better appear on, and were clutching their identification and travel papers. I had no tag, but I pulled a clutch of notes I'd been writing out of my pants pocket and my Bureau of Investigation badge from inside my jacket. Now I looked the part, I remember thinking. Now I can pass up the stairs with the rest. So I did. At the bottom of the fabled stairs that led up from the great doorway to the second floor main hall, we were divided into two swarms, one with women and children and the other with just men. 
The swarm of men were shoved into one line at the foot of the stairs by guards from the immigration service who barely bothered to even look at us. I was pushed in between what must have been a father and son, both of whom seemed desperate to stay together, so I surreptitiously pulled the son in front of me and returned their grateful smiles. Then we were on the stairs, mounting slowly up one step at a time as the doctors who stood at each landing regarded us each in turn, quickly and efficiently, almost like meat inspectors, I thought. The father who I had reunited with his son had a weak leg, and he was careful to take each step up with his left foot to hide the lameness in his right. But the doctor on the first landing wasn't fooled for a second. He brought out his piece of chalk and marked the lapel of the man's suit, perhaps his only suit in the world. Who were we? Those who stood in line from this one ship? European, certainly. A half dozen vaguely familiar languages were being whispered around me, including a rough Scots burr. And what? Austrian, Italian... Not African, or at least no skin darker than Lucy's. Jewish, nothing of the pure Nordic strain that the anti-immigration forces seemed to think populated the American heartland. Then the son was on the landing in front of the first doctor, who glanced up and down at him quickly and nodded him on past. I stepped up and suddenly felt thin and shop-worn before the physician in his uniform. With barely a glance, he brought out his chalk to work on my jacket. I could feel the letter F being inscribed against my chest over my heart. He paused then, still grasping my lapel, and regarded my face closely, impassively. Stared into my eyes ever so briefly, and then the chalk again. I could feel the label X for deranged. Ludmila Kuchar was right, I thought. It's the psychotic ward for me.